Noon fam, how we doing? I got to admit, I'm a little bit relieved that my dad's not going to be sitting behind me the entire time I preach. I was a little nervous there for a second. Um, really excited to continue our series on worship today. We started last week, and I'm going to pray in just a second, but I want to let you know of a couple things before I pray and we get into our sermon for today. First thing is, Pastor Tim, our lead pastor, will be back next week. Uh, he's been on vacation the past couple weeks, so if you're new, you get to meet him next week, and the rest of us are eager to see him, aren't we? Um, so we'll just pray that his return trip is, is, uh, is quick and safe. And we're also, um, just one other thing to note for you, we had a church that was sent out today in Sovereign Grace, um, a church plant to Newark, Delaware, out of our sister church, Covenant Fellowship, that actually planted us. Um, and so we just want to pray for this church being sent there today as they start their services next week. So will you bow your head with me as we pray? Father, thank you for, uh, Lord, for Tim and all the ways that you have blessed us through his preaching. Even as he returns, would he come back refreshed? Would he come back ready to continue to deliver the word to us? And we thank you for him. And Lord, we thank you for this church plant starting in Newark, Delaware, under Joel Shorey, Tim's son. We pray God, that this would have immediate and tangible fruit as the gospel goes forth to this place. Would you build your church, and whatever obstacles they face, would the gates of hell not prevail against your church? We pray this for them. And we pray today, Lord, as we enter in and we look at your word and we examine what you call us to do in singing, God, that you would help us to get a vision, get a vision for what we've got in singing that we would get a vision for what it looks like to sing together, to sing about the gospel, and to sing in a way that was reflective of the song of heaven. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So what is the hardest part about living in unity when you are a church of diversity? What's the hardest part for you, I wonder? Because we're risen hope. We have amazing, glorious diversity. But for some, and probably for all of us, that poses particular challenges. And for one diverse church, the hardest thing about being diverse and striving for unity was the singing. This is a church in Jacksonville that's currently um, working towards diversity in a similar way that we would, and a newspaper article was written about them about a year ago, and it says this. Fifty-four years after the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. famously pronounced that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in this nation, Shiloh Baptist embarked on a journey to address whether that centuries-old divide can be changed. This article is talking about this African-American church that started out as a dwindling small congregation but a new pastor, H.B. Charles, took it over, and it began to grow and grow to the point where they were looking for a new building. And so the article continues, they took their proposal for a new church building to the Jacksonville Baptist Association, but Rick Wheeler, who leads the association, had another idea. Wheeler knew about another church, very different from Shiloh. Ridgewood Baptist Church was suburban and white. And while Shiloh was thriving, Ridgewood was losing members and in debt since their senior pastor's death from cancer. And instead of starting a new church, Wheeler asked, 
would Shiloh like to merge with Ridgewood? Gradually, over meetings, uh, months of meetings and prayer in both churches, the idea of a merger went from laughably unlikely to a sound business decision to a higher calling. The Bible says that from the church, God is making a tribe of every nation, people, and tongue. And I feel like the church should look like that, Charles said. And the only way to make a tribe of all peoples was to actually join existing churches in his mind. When the first joint service convened in January of 2015, the media crowed with a new hope and a powerful statement in Jacksonville. The merger of the two churches, each more than 100 years old, involved compromises. And the music, this is what the article says, the music proved an especially tough adjustment for people. Many were accustomed to either the vibrant gospel in downtown Jacksonville or the traditional hymns in Orange Park. And Dan Beckwith, one of the 11 pastors on staff, said the leadership did not want to let people pick and choose by offering a contemporary and a traditional service at another time, lest the congregation resegregate. So on one Sunday, all the music at both locations has gospel flavor. And on another Sunday, they all have a more sedate tone. Now, friends, Martin Luther King grieved the truth of his day that Sunday morning was the most segregated hour in America. And nearly 60 years later, that is still a horrifying fact. 60 years. It's real. The truth is, if we look at the church, it doesn't often worship in diversity. But we have been blessed in this church with incredible diversity. The last time I checked, there was 21 different ethnicities represented on average as we gather on Sundays. And only a slight Caucasian majority. That is remarkable grace from God. And it's hard to find these days. But I think that there are some who are here today, if we're honest, that would say there are some things that are hard about that. There are maybe some who are struggling with a little bit of an identity struggle. And I bet you that's true regardless of what ethnicity you're coming from. Why is that? Well, how many of you guys like opera music? Raise your hand if you like opera. All right, we've got some opera people. How about hip-hop? Raise your hand. How many of you like rock music? How many of you like country music? I'll try not to judge you because this is terrible. No, but the reality is we have a lot of different preferences in music, don't we? We don't all listen to the same radio stations. We don't all have the same Spotify playlists. And the same is true when we gather to sing, except it's deeper. It's stickier. You see, these songs that we sing go down deep into our hearts. They get into us. And they're connected to particular events in our life, deaths, funerals, births, that moment when your life was changed by God. For me, it's, it is well with my soul. Missy always jokes when I put it is well with, with my soul in a set. She's like, of course you did, because it's my favorite song. And I like it played a certain type of way. And if somebody changes it, I'm like, ah, it's really hard for me to enter in. And you have your own song. And you don't just have your own songs, you have the way you like it played, right? But when we turn to the New Testament, when we turn to Colossians 3, 
we see that singing in the gathered church is less about our personal preferences and more about our collective voice. We learn that the song of worship is a community experience. And that when we gather, it's different than our quiet times when we're by ourselves. It's different than what our Spotify shows. It, it, it's different from what Apple iTunes most played for us looks like. It's different than a college campus ministry with everybody the same age. It's different than young life. The church should be diverse. And it, the song choices and the preferences have to be shaped by that. Song of worship is a community experience, and we're going to see in Colossians 3.16 today three big points. And these are my points today if you're taking notes. First, our song is to be permanently and proudly gospel-centered. Permanently and proudly gospel-centered. Then we'll look at how that song is consciously conversational, and finally, how it's intentionally diverse. Let's start with our first point, permanently and proudly gospel-centered. Now, in Colossians 3, we didn't read this, but Paul, in this section of Scripture, has been talking about how do you live your life out once you have been saved by Jesus Christ? What does it look like to really take your life seriously, your pursuit of God seriously? And he says in verse 1, look with me in verse 1, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he goes on to, to talk about fighting sin and pursuing the grace that's ours. He, he, he shows us what that looks like by then talking about how we need to forgive each other. We need to forbear with each other. We need to allow the ruling grace of Christ be in our life to the point where we have peace. And then he concludes by saying, let the word of Christ well in you richly. So, what is this word of Christ? Well, the word for word is logos in the Greek, and you probably remember in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word maybe was God? Was God, right? That word was talking about a person. In the beginning was the word. That was Jesus that they're referring to. But are they talking about Jesus here? It's the word of Christ, that would literally be the Jesus of Christ. This actually is talking about a message about Jesus Christ. The contents of this message are the gospel. The word of Christ is the good news of the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. And we have to ask. We have to make sure we don't assume. We have to remind ourselves, what is that word of Christ? What is that gospel? And earlier in verse 2 of Colossians 3, let's read what this gospel is. Sorry, in verse 3 of Colossians 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. You see, the gospel starts, the word of Christ starts with bad news. Death. All have sinned and are deserving of death. But the good news of the gospel is that the sins that should kill us are placed on another. That though we should die for our sins, Paul can look at us who have trusted in Jesus and say, you have died. 
already. Because Jesus took your sins on his own head, and when he died, it became your death. So that you no longer have to fear death. And Jesus doesn't just die for our sins. He also gives us his righteousness. It says that. Look, it says, the, um, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the word of Christ is this idea of being saved by Jesus Christ, his death becoming ours, and us receiving his righteousness that he lived with, covering our own filth. And that is good news, friends. That is the message of the gospel that we never move on from. That is what Paul tells us we must allow to dwell in us richly. And some of us, we can feel, I can feel this way, that, okay, I know the gospel, let's move on. Maybe you're thinking that right now. No. We need to set up our camp here. We need to dig deeper into the gospel. And Paul uses two gripping words to reinforce this. He says that we need to allow it to dwell in us. And then he says, dwell in us richly. So think of it this way. By allowing God to put the gospel down deep in us, we're allowing the gospel to not just be a message, an abstraction from us, but to be living and informing and demanding of us in the moment, the here and now. John Calvin puts it this way. He says, Paul here addresses men and women of all ranks, nor would he simply have them take a slight taste merely of the word of Christ, but exhorts that it should dwell in them. That is, that it should have a settled abode, and that largely that they may make it their aim and advance and increase more and more every day in their life. So what's your greatest ambition? What's your biggest goal in life? It should be that you would believe the gospel and understand it more deeply every subsequent day of your life. That's what it means to let this gospel dwell. But he also says we need to let it dwell in us richly. And that means it's not just permanently in our lives, it's precious to us. It's valuable. Some of us have in our homes a prominent piece of decor in our house when you first walk in, something we're proud to display. Maybe it's a grand piano. Maybe it's a picture of your kids. Maybe it's an inspirational quote. But typically we think through, what's the first thing someone sees when we come through, they come through my doors? Using Paul's analogy here, the gospel should be on our mantle more than any inspirational quote. The gospel should be on our stairway more than any legacy of our children. The gospel should be the first thing on our calendar, and it should be in the bathroom, in the bedroom, engraved into the table, carved into our hearts. What does that look like? Okay, that's a cool analogy. Well, Paul says three things in our text. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, what? Teaching and admonishing each other with all wisdom. That's two of them, teaching and admonishing. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Maybe when you see that teaching, admonishing, and singing language, you think, oh, obviously we teach and admonish the word of Christ. That's how we let it dwell in us. But to Paul, a primary way 
that we allow this truth to be in our hearts and we treasure it and we value it is by singing it. There is no qualification or order here. It's not like, all right, listen to Leo teach the gospel. And then if that works, you try to correct each other with the gospel. And then if that doesn't blow up in your face, try singing about it. No. Teaching, admonishing, and singing are ongoing, continual descriptions of what it looks like to allow the gospel to be in us permanently and to be in us proudly. When we sing the song, Lord, take me deeper into the glories of Calvary, that's a line from a song we sing. We're literally begging God, may Colossians 3 happen in our hearts. When we sing like we did just now, only Jesus Only Jesus, give us Jesus, we cry. We're letting the gospel settle permanently in us. And when we say, all I have is Christ, Jesus is my life, we're saying he's precious. We're allowing it to dwell richly in us. And when we say, the Lord is my light and salvation, who shall I fear? Whom shall I be afraid? We're taking the gospel seriously. We're taking the gospel seriously and living the Christian life, like Paul calls us to, meaningfully. And we will receive grace. I don't know if you remember this, if you've been with us for a couple years, Alex preached a sermon where he said this line that stuck with me. He said, the opposite of gratefulness is forgetfulness. Right? So if we stop being thankful for something or grateful, we will no longer remember it. And the same is true of the gospel, friends. One of the reasons why the text says to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts is because when we recall the gospel again and again and we sing of this Savior, Jesus, over and over again, it goes deeper. It sinks into us. And the contrary is true as well. If we don't sing about it, If we don't lift him higher, we will forget. We will wander. We will move on from the gospel. But when we treasure treasure the, the word of Christ, the spirit draws near. He fills us again and again and again, always faithfully. And that that needs to be something that we get behind. Oh, we have to sing about Jesus again? No, we get to sing about Jesus again, right? Permanently. I'm putting my claim here. This is the hill I die on. I will sing about this until my vocal cords don't work anymore. Proudly, I'm going to sing about Jesus more than myself. I will boast in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Amen. And that needs to dictate the kind of songs we sing, right? When I'm picking music or our other worship leaders are picking music, you'll notice that we don't always pick the songs with the best melodies. There's some stuff on the radio right, that maybe is more gripping or interesting, but it doesn't always get to the gospel with depth or with clarity or specificity. Or maybe it says something well, but it's not really the main theme in Scripture. And so we want to major on the majors of the gospel, even as we sing. That's why we just center our music around the gospel. We're trying to live out Colossians 3, even as we sing. And so that's our first point. Our song, When We Gather, is permanently and proudly gospel-centered. Secondly, we see in this text that 
when we sing, we should be consciously conversational. Consciously conversational. I don't know if you noticed this, but when Paul talked about teaching and admonishing one another, he said, to one another. And then immediately breaks upon singing, right? There's a sense of connection between one another and singing. And Ephesians 5, 19 makes the same point even more clearly. Paul's writing this too, getting at the same theme. He says this, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another. Who? Be filled with the Spirit, speaking with one another, psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. So, there's a very real element to our, our song when we gather is we're singing to each other. We're not just singing vertically. We are singing vertically, right? Do you see that in Ephesians 5? It goes on and says, giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are doing that. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Communing with the Spirit, being lifted up to commune with God, who is the eternal Spirit. But there's another dimension here, a horizontal one. And we're addressing each other. And we need to be aware of this. And if you're like me, your happy place in singing is to be totally oblivious of everything else. I, I, I love the, the movie Get Smart. Anybody ever seen that? It's a goofy, goofy spy movie that happened a few years ago. There's this scene where uh, the main character who's this terrible spy, he like tries to use this gadget called this, the, the cone of silence. And he, he, he presses it, and it's supposed to put this force field around him so that no one can hear what he's saying. So he's like, and he says, oh, my God, this is the greatest moment of my life. But unfortunately, the button failed, and everybody around him hears it. And some of us can feel like we want a little cone of silence when we're singing. We just want to be like in our own world, close my eyes, never look around me, turn that music up so I can't hear anything else. Just get out of my way. Give me some room so I don't have to be aware of anybody around me. But if we do that, we're missing out on a primary part of singing. We're doing this together. We gather partially to sing to each other, to respond to the sermon, right, to fellowship, and to sing to each other. And so we need to open our eyes when we sing. I, I do this regularly. I'm like, I open my eyes. Sometimes I start shouting and going crazy during worship. And Missy is just like, she does this thing. You'll see her. You can laugh next time you see this. She goes, honey. And she grabs my wrist. She goes. And that's her little way of reminding me there are other people here. And you're like knocking me over next to you in the aisle. Right? Some of you, and I'm preaching to myself mostly here, but some of you are, are in this place with me where I, you just like getting lost in your own little bubble and you need to open your eyes and see the beauty of the gathered church singing. When we sing, we're dressing each other. And what are we doing? We're remembering the gospel together. We're calling to each other to believe the gospel. We sing a song where we say, all the redeemed washed by his blood, come now, with joy in his great love. Oh, praise him. Who's that directed to? It's directed to blood-bought brothers and sisters around you. You're saying, praise him, Matt. Praise him, Nikki. Praise him, Joe. And it's awkward because I just said your name, but we're here together. And there's a sense where when we sing those words, we're doing this together. We're exhorting each other. We're confessing sin together when we confess. We're asking for the filling of the Spirit like we just did. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And even when we sing songs with personal language like, I love you, Lord, or Jesus, you are my king, 
even then, there's a dimension where we're telling each other this is true. Even when we say, you are the source of my strength. You are the strength of my life. I lift my hands in total praise to you. When we sing that, we're also saying, brother, God is the source of your strength. God is the strength of your life. So lift your hands to him. Even if you're weary, he's your strength, right? We're addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So when we gather, we're permanently and proudly stuck on that gospel and aware of each other. And I have been so helped with this by some of the songs that we sing from our gospel tradition. Because a lot of times they'll have a call and response. The choir will be engaging with the leader and there's this back and forth that happens that accentuates this aspect of singing. And sometimes I felt uncomfortable. You know why that is? Because I'm imbalanced. I'm oftentimes doing this only. And that brings me back. Oh yeah, I'm with you. Sometimes there's solos in our music. I need to just, just, just gently challenge you, friends. If you're tempted to check out in that moment, when, the, when the, the leader's singing or something like that, friends, it's an opportunity to listen. It's an opportunity to stay engaged. When we are talking to one another, what does that imply? We're also listening to one another, right? And so those moments are great times for you to be thanking God for the person singing, praying the same words they're singing, that God would help you believe they're true, thinking of scriptures that inform that person's singing, and even maybe singing along quietly if that makes you feel comfortable, right? But we need to stay engaged. And it's not just in our call and response songs that we do that. It's in every song. In every song, we should be consciously conversation, conversational even as we sing the gospel. And this brings us to our final point. When we sing together, we need to be intentionally diverse. This brings us kind of full circle back to our intro story, doesn't it? So maybe you're like me and you've had those moments where you just stop singing. I did this today, just listening to everybody singing. It's so beautiful, so wonderful. Or you've been to conferences where you, you just, you, maybe it's a celebration conference we do or bigger conferences and you just hear the voices and you're like, wow, this is awesome and your heart gets stirred up by that. So why is it that sometimes our hearts are not stirred up by this? Why is it that you know, musical skill aside and all that, sometimes they're distractions. Why is it that sometimes we struggle when we sing? Why was it so hard for Shiloh Church? Why was it that when I heard H.B. Charles, the senior pastor of that church, give a talk at a Sovereign Grace Worship Conference, he said worship wars and worship turf was the hardest thing about merging those two congregations together. It's because we don't realize how personalized and how strong our preferences are in singing until they're taken away, right? Some of us come from a tradition where being expressive physically is very uncomfortable. Some of us might be a little allergic to that kind of zeal. Someone starts clapping or dancing in the aisle or singing loudly or moving a little erratically and you're tempted to judge them in your heart as just emotionalism, like trying to just feel something without thinking something. 
Some of us have a narrow definition of what it looks like to sing passionately. It's got to look like you're up and down that pew, you're clapping, you're singing to the top of your voice. You got to be free singing between verses, man. Some of us have no category for that person who's more quiet, maybe introverted, maybe comes from a tradition where it's expressed differently and they're just quietly bowed. But worshiping consciously, conversationally, means that we must appreciate and embrace the diverse ways that those around us encounter God and sing His praises. we got to learn what that gentle person looks like when they're truly engaged. we got to draw them out about that. What, is, what does it look like when you're excited so I can see that and, and build off of that? We need to learn to respect the, the zeal and the overflowing thankfulness that comes from the louder ones among us and the more expressive, even when they're obnoxious like me. We need to learn to love that and learn to worship together. But friends, at Risen Hope, it goes beyond just expressions of singing or preferences in that, that narrow sense. We have a diverse congregation, and so this goes to a place of cultural diversity. It goes beyond just if I like to be loud or I like to be quiet, or I like to lift my hands or put my hands down, it extends to our cultural traditions. Guys, we're blessed with diversity, not just in race, ethnicity, but also in age. And those are rare things. They're uncommon. I don't know if like about me, but when you tell people at work, do they look at you like you have three heads? Because they do to me. They're like, your church is what? They look at me like I'm some kind of novelty from like Barnes and Bailey or something. And I look at them, I'm like, it's not a novelty, it's precious, it's glorious, it's holy ground. What's happening here for our time is very, very precious, and it's very, very much remarkable grace from God. We need to see it that way, and that means we have to steward it. It's like you had a relative who was wealthy who died. And all of a sudden, this inheritance was given to you. That's what we've received here. It's a weighty thing. It's a glorious thing. And one of the things that we need to do is steward it. And what does it look like for us to steward diversity? Well, it looks like being intentionally diverse in the way we sing. Even in this passage, Colossians 3, Paul hints at this. He says, we need to be letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another with uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Not just psalms, not just hymns, not just spiritual songs. We can't press those three things into specific genres, right? That's not what Paul meant. But we can say he expects a flexibility a diversity in the musical expressions that are coming out of the church. And we can say that Paul's expectation for singing was diverse. So we do this, we sing songs that sometimes might make you feel like you've got a little bit of cultural whiplash. One minute we're singing something that's right out of, of gospel tradition. The next minute we're singing something out of contemporary that you might hear on Caleb. And the next minute we're singing something from hymns. And that's because we're trying to steward this. We're trying to be faithful with what God has given us. But that's not the only reason we're doing it. 
We're also doing this because the, the traditions present here, the cultural traditions, have value in and of themselves. They bring something to the table. And broadly speaking, we have three predominant traditions here. We have the contemporary Christian tradition, we have the hymn tradition, and we have the gospel tradition. And Andy Farmer, which we affectionately call him Uncle Andy, uh, gave us a sermon two years ago on the topic of diversity in singing. And he helped us to see beautifully the value that these three traditions bring when we sing. He spoke of the fact that hymns were born out of protest. They prized the voice of the people when the church was trying to silence them. They helped us see that God's truth is unshakable, that even when a monster of a false church rises up to crush you, God's truth remains true. And that's what hymns teach us. We benefit from that when we sing time-honored hymns. He spoke of the fact that gospel music was born out of suffering. It teaches us that God's words are a part of us and that melodies go deep inside of us. It's not something we just rehearse. It's something that changes us even as we sing. And it reinforces that we are not where we belong, but that that's okay because we're on a journey to a better place. And it helps us not to have satisfaction in and of now, but to look to the future day. He spoke of the contemporary movement, which was born out of revival where there was a lot of people immersed in the sex, love, and rock and roll world that were saved that wanted to worship God in the only way that they knew how to, with the same kind of music. And it teaches us that God is real, that God's here when we sing, that we should be sensing his presence. These traditions bring value. They enhance our singing. These are thoroughly scriptural things that they're emphasizing, aren't they? And Andy summarizes all this in this beautiful quote I want to give to you. You can read along with me. He said, hymns are the voice that defends timeless truth. Gospel is the voice that lives, sorry, gospel is the voice that looks to God in hope. Contemporary is the voice that lives on mission. Hymns were born in response to the lie that God requires you to work your salvation. Gospel in response to the lie that God doesn't care about you. And contemporary to the lie that God is dead. Hymns take us into the depths of our justification in Christ. Gospel into the depths of our deliverance by Christ and contemporary into the depths of our new life in Christ. They bring within themselves certain emphases that help us, that they enhance our experience. So we sing intentionally diverse to steward what God has given us, right, in our diversity, to be blessed and benefit from the rich value in these traditions. But more than that, we are intentionally diverse because that's what the gospel does. When Jesus dies for us, what happens? He saves us from our sins, for you have died. Those sins are gone. His death is your death. And do you live like a rogue, wandering with one relationship with Jesus? No. You are saved to be united with Christ, and so is everyone else who has called on his name. And so in this glorious 
this web of salvation, everyone is connected to Jesus Christ. So that there's this beautiful dependence on our vine as we are the branches, on the head as we are the body. And brothers and sisters, the Bible is clear. The body that Jesus saved, that he united to himself, is not one color. The Bible is clear that it is a multicultural, beautiful body of people. And how do we know that? Am I just saying that? No. You look at it around you, and you see it. More than that, you look through church history, and you read the book of Acts. Back up. You look at the woman at the well from Samaria, and you see Jesus going after someone of a different ethnicity. And then you see the gospel start in Jerusalem to the Jews, but then spread to Samaria and spread to the whole world so that God could say that he sent his only son to save the world. All peoples from all tribes and nations and from all these places beautifully brought together because the gospel has the power to bring us together. Ephesians 2 says that the walls of hostilities between different races and ethnicities are crushed by the work and the cross of Jesus Christ. And you know what? The gospel doesn't stop with what you see right here and right now. The gospel is headed somewhere. Jesus' work is headed to heaven. And what does heaven look like? Heaven looks like Revelation 7, where John was given this vision of what the glorious body of Jesus would look like when, when they're saved and gathered around the throne. This is his description. After this, I looked, and behold... A great multitude that no one could number. What does it look like? From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That multitude that no one can number does not look like one color it does not look like one age it does not look like one wealth it's diverse and it's beautiful and God has been about this business since he created Adam and Eve and put the genes in place to make that diversity God's gospel is intentionally diverse and so we need to sing it so I wonder what will the groove be behind this chorus? You ever wonder that? What will it look like to have not a stadium full, but a whole earth full of people singing the praise? And not singing in many voices. They're from different tribes and languages and peoples, but did you see in the text? They cry out with a loud voice. Complete complete solidarity as this diverse church sings the praises of God. So why do we sing the way we do? Why is it that one song is one way, one... Why is it? Because that's what the gospel does, is doing, and will do. And that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly. It will be better than what's happening here. This is flawed. This is our attempt to try to embrace and steward this. But it's going to be multicultural, the song in heaven. And we want that song to be reflected, reflective of this even now. Not everybody gets this opportunity right now. 
we said what we have is rare. Folks live in places on earth where there are no other ethnicities around. We live in a place where we can do this now. We can see the gospel going forth and we can see a picture of heaven even now. So friends, maybe you found yourself uncomfortable in our singing. Maybe you thought, should I, should I leave? It just doesn't feel the way I'm used to church feeling. Maybe you'd say you're suffering from a little cultural whiplash and you diagnose our worship personality as multi-personality disorder. Well, friends, let me just ask you, is God calling you to examine your cultural preferences today? Have your preferences in singing been determined by what's comfortable and easy for you? Or have they been determined and shaped by what heaven looks like? Think about that question for yourself. The next time you struggle, we all do. We are going to have those moments. Andy said it well in his sermon. He said we need to not just tolerate diversity. We need to embrace it. And that might look like changing what you listen to on Spotify, on YouTube. That might be asking your brothers and sisters at the next Grace and Race meeting, what do you listen to? How did you experience singing last week? Might, be mean, might mean having somebody over and asking them to help you to embrace and understand praise team. Help me understand that. And friends, we need to be permanently and proudly gospel-centered when we sing. And that leads us to recognize each other and to sing in a way that's intentionally diverse. And we get to practice now. We're going to keep singing. So if I can invite the band to come on up, I'm going to pray that God would do something in us where we move from like, I'm okay with this, to saying this is amazing and glorious. Throwing ourselves in even when the song is unfamiliar even when the song is in our preference, that we would be like, yes, I get to sing with my brothers and sisters. So let me pray. Why don't we all stand? Father, I thank you that when you said, I will make man in my own image, you gave us vocal cords. You gave us a song to sing. When, you, when we wander, you say that we should say, restore to me the joy of my salvation, that we should sing anew our song. I thank you for giving us a gospel that's enough, a message that's about a Savior who is enough, so that we don't have to come up with something new every week to sing about, something new every week to change our lives forever, but we just stick in the ground, our flag on that ground of the gospel of Calvary. And so, Lord, would you help us to do this? Would you help us to worship together? Would you help us to lean into the diversity you've given us? And would you grow our diversity in our church even more, God? Bless us as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen.